You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, we are coming to the end of our David series. Uh, We only have two weeks left, and I'll tell you, the one thing I'm going to be most disappointed about is losing that bumper. Like, I always feel so tough when I come out to that music. Normally, like, I picture, you know, your walk-up music, and I always think, like, mine would be, like, the Golden Girls, thank you for being a friend or something. But that sounds awesome. That's way better. And so, but we are coming to the end of David. Uh, It's been 11 weeks. We're on week 10, and it's crazy to think of boiling down one man's life into 11 weeks, but, but we've done it. And today's passage we're going to look at is found in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's near the end of his life. Uh, it is a story about reality, about sin. It's neat to see in the Bible, it's stories like this that convince me this is God's word. Convince me that this is not uh, written strangely to be able to influence people because there's no reason you would include the story of Bathsheba. There's no reason you include this story of David's sin of pride. If you were just trying to present David, God's perfect man, in this great, beautiful picture, but instead it presents David who he really was, with all the flaws, and I love that, because that's who I am. That's who probably you are, that you have flaws too, you have great moments that we're walking with God, and then you have moments that you look back and you're like, what was I thinking? And that's what we're going to see here in David's life. So David, uh, we were first introduced to David, uh, we see him get anointed, and then the next thing we see is a battle with the Philistines, right? Is his battle with Goliath, and he faces Goliath with the stone, and he holds up the head of Goliath at the end after he's cut it off, and he's victorious. Now, fast forward into the rest of David's life, and he's going to battle one last time against the Philistines, and they win. The Israelites win, and in this battle, it even talks about that there was the brother of Goliath and several other giants. And I had mentioned way back, if you remember, that some people believe that's why he took the five stones, that Goliath had four brothers, that David knew he could take each one out if he needed with God's help. Well, anyways, he has this battle at the end of his life against Goliath's family again, and they win. And he comes back victorious, and he comes back full of pride, and he comes back on the spiritual high. And and they often say that at our highs is when we fall the furthest. That when you're excited, when you're you're at your peak, that you can fall. We see this in Elijah, that he falls into depression after the the great battle uh, over the the prophets of Baal. We see this all the time. As a pastor, uh, I've always been told Monday is the day that pastors most fall into sin. That they'll most fall into temptation is because you have Sunday and Sunday seems like a great day and you see all your friends and everything goes well and then Monday it's just a letdown. So for me personally, that's the day we schedule all of our meetings. As a staff, I schedule everything on Monday because I'm too busy to to fall into any letdown. And so I'm meeting with the staff on Mondays intentionally to prevent that from happening. So this is where we see David. He's come back. He's victorious. He's a champion. Israel's a champion, and he's full of pride. He's full of himself. And I don't think it's just David. The nation of Israel is full, full of themselves. Look what we did in this battle. Look how we beat the mighty Philistines. Look what we did to those, those giants. And they come back, and they're all proud. And that's where our story picks up in 2 Samuel chapter 24. 
And it starts off right away with a deep theological question, a, a theological conflict that we're about to hit that a lot of people would, want, would rather just skip over. Churches would not even address this verse. But as we go verse by verse at Discovery, I, I appreciate that because it makes us hit the hard points. And so this first verse says, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he enticed David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judea. It's a struggle there, right? Uh, if you don't know how this story goes, I'll, I'll tell you, taking the census is a sin. It's not a sin to take a census. They did that many times in the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes it would be for, to be able to collect a, a, a royalty for the temple. Later on when they have a temple, sometimes it would be just to know how many fighting men you have. There's nothing wrong with the census, but there's no reason for the census at this time. They've already taken one. The only purpose of this is pride. The only purpose for these numbers is for David to be proud of his own self, to be proud of his country, to say, look at all that I can do, look at all that I can conquer. And if this isn't okay, then how could it be the Lord enticed David against it? How would the Lord entice the sin? To make this even more muddled, to make it more confusing and a struggle theologically, is we have the same account in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And that version says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So now, how do we reckon this? Like I said, most people would rather just gloss over this part. Most people would rather skip ahead and start on verse 2. Most people would rather not even bring up that there's a conflict. It was a God or Satan. How did the authors not know the difference? And so as I studied and I tried to find an answer for us, what I came to the conclusion, what many people shared is it's a matter of perspective. A perspective of being up close and a perspective of, out, of great distance. Much like a perspective like those 3D videos coming from space to earth, Right? I think we even have one of those while I'm talking, that we have this perspective from far away, and then you have a perspective up close. Second Samuel was written about 500 BC, and, and it was a time when they saw the sin in Israel and in David. This is the big picture, right? The far away picture, and they see that God is over everything, God allows everything, and he allows free will. This is the viewpoint from a distance that God allows it, so God must have allowed him to sin, God must have enticed him to sin. It's this idea that at this time, in the revelation of God, that they saw that God just allowed everything to happen, right? Then First Chronicles is written a little bit of time later, a time after that more prophets have come, a time that there's been more revealed and from God, it's, it's revelation from God, and they have a different view. And it's not just a different view, but it's a more direct view. It's the up-close view. It's the view where you get all the way down and you see the person's face before you back up. This view, uh, Chronicles, is written about 250 B.C., and this view looks at that God allows sin to happen. But more specifically, because that is the big picture, but more specifically, Satan is the one that did the tempting. And so how do you see this? It's two different perspectives because it, both are true. God gives us free will. God allows us to sin. I know that's a hard thing to struggle through. It's a hard thing to grasp, especially if you're a new believer. Why would God allow us to sin? I remember when I was a kid, my uncle struggled with alcohol. And I remember praying, God, just don't let him go to that store. God, just don't let him buy a bottle. 
Why wasn't God just stop him? And the most beautiful thing is God gives us free will. And it hurts because Uncle Steve kept going and buying a bottle. But imagine the other side. If God didn't give us free will, if God controlled everything and he said that you will love me, you will follow me, you will do this for me, you will not do, go get that bottle, you will not take a census, you will not do this, and he could control us, would we really want to follow a God like that? We would just be puppets being pulled on strings, doing whatever God makes us do, and there wouldn't really be much of a relationship. There certainly wouldn't be love towards God. Not genuine love. It would just be forced love. And so instead, instead of having the strings, God cut those long ago and let us move ourselves. And so while he does allow sin to happen, we choose to give in to temptation. Satan tempts David here. There's a few times in the Old Testament that we see Satan himself is the tempter. And we see that here. And Satan tempts David but God allows it to happen. So it's a hard passage to, to understand. How would God prompt this? How would Satan prompt this? And how are both reconciled? And I think it's a matter of perspective because both are true. So either way, we get into the story that David orders a census. And it's not for good causes. Verse 2 says, So the king said to Job, the army commanders, and and the army commanders with him go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. This doesn't seem bad, right? But Job even knows that it's bad. And this guy doesn't have a great track record of following God, right? And he knows that this is wrong. It says, but Job replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops as a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Job and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king and enrolled the fighting men. Like I said, nothing's wrong with a normal census. But in this case, it's a, it's a sin of pride. David just wants to boast himself up. Some believe that maybe he knows his life is coming to an end and his son's about to take over. And his son, is a, Solomon, is a man of peace, not a man of war. And David wants to know, well, will, will he be okay? Will he be safe? But again, that's a matter of not trusting God. He's putting his trust in the number of men that could fight for Solomon, not in the God that will fight for Solomon. Sins that I see, I don't know about you, but I see myself fall into all the time. Sins of pride, sins of lack of trust, sins of doubt, sins of questioning God. It's the sins that we all work through, and David was no different. He's a man just like you and me, but we're going to see he's a man after God's own heart. How is that reconciled, too? Job goes out for 10 months, and he does this survey of all the people, in it, of all the fighting men in Israel, and he comes back, and it's verse 9 says, Job reported the number of the fighting men in, to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David has his census, he has his numbers. But as the story written in 1 Chronicles says, the Lord was displeased. God permitted Job to go and do that. For 10 months, he went out. 
For 10 months, he surveyed. For 10 months, he went and got numbers. And for 10 months, David continued in his path of pride, in his path of lack of trust in God. For 10 months, David continued in his sin. Sometimes God allows us to do that, right? Sometimes instead of stopping us, God just allows us to make our decisions and and continue on in the sin, and, and we then regret it later, as we will see in the next verse. David gets his numbers. He gets the report from Joab, and he hits him. Why did I do this? Why did I get caught up in my numbers? It says, David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a foolish thing. He sees that he was wrong. I love this. When the Bible talks about David as a man after God's own heart. And then we see he commits these sins. I find hope and connection in that. Because I make mistakes as well, but we see David comes back around to have God's heart. He comes back around after he gets these numbers and he realizes, why did I get so caught up in this? Why did I get caught up in my ego, my pride? God, why have I sinned? I have sinned greatly for what I've done. Six times David confesses, I have sinned. In our study of David, six times. This is a great king David, the greatest king of Israel. And six times he's confessed, I have sinned. When he confessed confessed adultery and murder with Bathsheba, he said, I have sinned. And here he says, I have sinned greatly. I almost wonder if that's not because in the sin of Bathsheba and the sin of the death of Uriah, David was caught up in lust. David was caught up in the moment. But this sin, this one was meditated. This sin was a sin of the soul. This sin was a sin of, uh, of, his, of lack of trust of God. This sin has been going on for 10 months. That he's been wanting these numbers, that he's been sending his troops out, that he's been caught up in who he is and what God has built him to, what God has built his country to, looking at all these things. And so he says, I have sinned greatly. As one person said, pride is the ground in which all other sins grow. And we've seen that throughout David's life. So the sinfulness was a willful rebellion. And so God is about to bring consequences. Verse 11 says, Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come to you a three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how should I answer the one who sent me. This is the first and the only time I've ever seen God give options for the consequences. But, but there are three horrible options. Imagine that, three years of famine, three months of battle, three days of plagues. All of it's going to impact my entire country. All of it's going to impact my people, and it's all my fault. I have to decide. So David says to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. 
When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arina, the Jebusite. You read that. And I don't know about you, but this is a hard story. Because you sit there and wonder, why did other people have to suffer? Right? This was David's sin. Why would 70,000 people die? And the reality is, that's the case with all of our sin. Not that people would die, but in all of our sin, others are always affected. There's this ripple effect of pain, of distrust, of hurt because of our sin. Think about children that have, have distorted views of marriages because of what they saw from their parents. Couples that have distorted views of, of intimacy because of what they've seen on pornography. Um, uh, employees impacted because of dishonest decisions by their bosses. Teams missing players when one is caught cheating. Sin always impacts others. I've shared before, I love hockey, but when someone commits a sin in hockey, they go to the penalty box, the sin bin, right? And they go, and they're put there for two minutes to five minutes, um, and, and they go, and, and they're isolated. And while they are set apart, their team suffers. For that full two minutes, their team now plays down a man. And if two people commit the penalty, two people go in that box, and their team is now down two people. They're playing three on five. The entire team is impacted by the sin or the penalty of one player. And the same is true in our lives. And so you see this, and it seems unfair, but we got to go back to that first verse. Don't forget, it says that it got the, God was angry at Israel, not just at David. Perhaps part of this was a punishment on the pride of all of Israel. Perhaps this punishment wasn't just towards David, but towards the people of Israel. One commentator has even said that perhaps the 70,000 were followers that followed Absalom in the rebellion. And so it was a way uh, that God was purging the land of those that would be questioning who is going to replace David when Solomon takes over. Either way, 70,000 people are impacted by the sin of David, by the sin of pride, by the sin of Israel. Passage goes on, uh, Verse 17, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. Why have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. And again, God was angry at all of Israel. And so David comes before the Lord. And, and in First Chronicles, the same story in chapter 21, it says that the elders of Israel were with him. And they all come and lay themselves before the Lord and they cry out for mercy. And it says, verse 18, 2 Samuel, On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arina, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through God. When Arina looked and saw the king and the officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed before the king and his face to the ground. Arina said, Why has the Lord my king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Harina said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and here are the threshing sledges and ox yoke for the wood. Your majesty, Harina, gives all this to the king. 
Rana also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. I wonder what David was feeling at that time. Here's a servant that's bowing down to him and saying, whatever you want, David, you're great. And David knows it's his sin, it's his problem that has brought this on the people. I would think he'd feel unworthy. I'd think he'd feel like an unworthy man to receive all this. And he also wants to be sure to not give a free offering to the Lord. And that he wants to make it worthwhile. He wants to have a sacrifice as he gives to the Lord. So it says, but the king replied to Rhina, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, a burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. The plague has ended. And some people, as they read this, would say, this seems so unfair. 70,000 people died. Why? And they say, why didn't God stop earlier? But if we look and see that God was angry at Israel, at the entire nation of Israel, the entire nation was caught up in their own pride, in their own victory, not trusting in the Lord. And so the flip side, you could say, why did God stop at 70,000? The entire people were sinning. They all deserved annihilation, including David. And we see the mercy. We see how God stopped short of giving us what we deserve. Same story is with you and me. Man, if I got what I deserved, if every time I sin, I deserve to have eternal damnation, if I deserve to go to hell, that would be my destination. But God is a God of grace. As I gave my life over to him, he's a God of mercy. The same with you. That if we were to get what we deserve, it would not be pretty. But thankfully, Jesus took what we deserve when he died on the cross. Right? When he died, he took on our sins. And because of that, when he rose victoriously, we all rose victoriously. Out of our sins, we get to go and have salvation in heaven. We get to have eternity in heaven. We have salvation now, eternity in heaven. This is the greatest story that we, that we don't get what we deserve, nor did the country of Israel, nor did David. It's the story you and I have every single day. Is God's grace and God's mercy. And it's not fair, but it is the plan God had for us, that he loves us that much. And if that's not the case, if you've not accepted Jesus as your Savior, I want to encourage you, come talk to us afterwards. Go see Sandy in the prayer room. Come talk to one of the elders in the fireside or see me outside. I'd love to talk to you about this amazing, eternity-changing decision. This decision of accepting God's grace. So... The Lord accepts his sacrifice and, and stops the, the, the plague. But I love this because this is where the story gets a little more powerful, right? This is where the story takes a twist. When we're reading the Bible, we have to look and say, why is this here? And sure, there's the story of pride that, that I could learn. There's the story of trusting God that I could learn. But is that all that God would want us to see from this? And if you know the historical background of this plot of land, the story unfolds beautifully. This plot of land is on, on Mount Moriah. This plot of land is the exact spot that Abraham took Isaac to make him a sacrifice. 
Same plot of land is the place that uh, God stepped in and saved Isaac and provided a lamb as a sacrifice instead. It's a beautiful story of the sacrifice being replaced. The same plot of land is the plot of land that David steps in and he, he has a sacrifice and the, the plague stops. Same plot of land is where his son Solomon is going to build the temple. This land that David bought is where the temple of the Lord will be built. This land is where God will reside when he comes into the Holy of Holies and where he will reside until the day that Jesus comes and dies on the cross. The same plot of land is used for amazing things. The same plot of land is where people will come and meet God face to face, where they will be in his presence in this plot of land that David purchased that came out of the sin that David committed. And I see the story and it's, as it unfolds, it creates beautiful things. Because sometimes... In the midst of our sin, God will still take that and create great things out of it. Does this mean that we should continue to sin? No. Romans is clear about that. And if you have any questions about that, you can turn to Romans 5 and says, where sins abound, grace abounds more. But it talks about Romans 6, do not keep on sinning. Do not keep on sinning just because grace abounds. But there is a truth that in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our our punishments and midst of our consequences, God will often take that when we turn to him. As you saw, David was a man after God's heart, that he turned to God, that he followed God, that he confessed, I've sinned greatly. And God took that and made it into something great. If you were to ask anyone familiar with David's life, what are his two big sins? Most would mention Bathsheba and when he took the census. And from those two sins in his life, God created the temple. Because Bathsheba is the mother of Solomon. Solomon is the future king that would create God's temple. And so from these horrible things, God has created beautiful things. So that's my prayer for each one of us, that we would be able to take that to heart. That if there's something that you're struggling with, if there's some guilt that you're holding on to, Present it to God and see what God can do with that. First come with a humble heart, confess your sin, and then present it before the Lord and see what God could do. Because out of the dust, he's created beautiful things. He's created beautiful things out of you and me. If you'll stand, let us worship with another song, just singing that message, being thankful for that message that we see in David's life out of the travesty, out of the brokenness, comes a contrite heart and comes God's greatness and his grace.